Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Victoria Sambunaris. She's featured in Photography and America's National Parks, which is on view at the Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, through October 2nd. It was curated by Jamie M. Allen. The exhibition catalog was published by Aperture. Sambunaris has been traveling America for much of the last two decades, photographing places where geology, industry, and American culture intersect. Her most recent book, Taxonomy of a Landscape, was published by Radius in 2014. Museums that hold her work include MoMA, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, the National Gallery of Art SF MoMA, and the Albright Knox. On the second segment, my 2014 conversation with Blanton Museum of Art curator Veronica Roberts. Her show, Converging Lines, Ava Hess and Saul LeWitt, is at the Cleveland Museum of Art through the end of the month. It examines the Hess-Lewitt friendship and the ways in which they informed each other's work. The exhibition is accompanied by an excellent catalog co-published by the Blanton and Yale University Press. We'll have links to all of the books I just mentioned on manpodcast.com. First up, Victoria Sambunaris, after the break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting three exhibitions that reframe the objects and environments of everyday life, July 29th through October 15th, 2016. Exquisite Every Day showcases 18th century European works of decorative art from the J. Paul Getty Museum that highlight the period's achievements in domestic design. The Ordinary Must Not Be Dull explores how Class Oldenburg's soft sculptures playfully alter the material, form, and scale of commonplace items, overturning sculptural conventions. Architecture Collective Raumleber Berlin's commission 4562 Enright Avenue disassembles a structurally unsound St. Louis house, giving its salvaged elements new life inside the Pulitzer as an installation that explores the history, present, and future of urban dwellings. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall, explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly, delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry, unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew, and examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts, or search for it in your favorite podcast player. And we're back. Victoria Sambinaris, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm thrilled to be on with you. We're talking on the occasion of picturing America's national parks at, at the Eastman House. And your 2010 picture of Santa Elena Canyon, which is in Big Bend National Park in, in far southern Texas, is in the show. And it's one of my, my favorite pieces of yours, and not just because I've been there. We'll have the picture on manpodcast.com, of course. But for textual purposes, let's call it a contemporary address of Timothy O'Sullivan's pictures of Western River Canyons. And I know there are other reasons you took the picture, and we're going to get into some of those. But I wonder if that historical link was part of the attraction between that picture and maybe even that site. I have to say, no, not not at all. I mean, all of that work, that historical geological survey work, is definitely a huge influence in my work. And I look at it. And I wish I had made those pictures and the country's a different place now, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't on my mind when I was shooting down there at Big Bend National Park. Really, I was engaged in the project that I was doing there. There was a reason I was down there and it wasn't, it, it didn't even really have to do with the national parks. It was looking at the U.S.-Mexico border and I was thinking about that place historically, but 
what I actually was shooting was the physical division of the border. And so I wasn't, I was thinking back historically of what that place was and what it was meant to be, what Big Bend National Park and Mexico was supposed to be a peace park to bring cohesion to the two countries, but it never really happened. And so I, I was thinking this is this was 2009, or I think that I shot this, or 10. I actually had to go down and reshoot it because I'd shot it many times. And I was working on that project between 2009 and 2012, I think. So I was back and forth multiple times and shooting and reshooting that very photograph. And so that that was, I'm actually, I'm looking at three photographs of Santa Elena Canyon that I took. But the first one that I took, my bellows were sagging. So I, I get back to New York after, you know, months of shooting, I get back and I process all the film and I had been shooting in the summer also, so it was very hot and hazy. And then I had the the bellows intrusion, so there was a black line at the bottom of of the frame. And I I couldn't believe I'm like I didn't get it. I have to go back. I, this is, go I back. should I should point out this is not an easy place to get to either from an airport or just from anywhere. <laughs> no, no, it's it's not easy to get to, and and I'm never just like. I'm never just flying to a place. So if I have to go back and reshoot, I'm getting back in the car in New York, loading up again and driving to that place. It's the only way to do it. So I I went back and I believe that shot was taken in the winter. So everything looked different. And I reshot it and, and I got it just second time. But in the meantime, I mean, I, I have about... Four four photographs of this. I have the original one where the with the bellows intrusion, which I've cropped, and then I have a few others. So I was looking at it in different light, and each each one looks completely different. And that's something that I frequently do is reshoot things, like go back at a different time and reshoot it. And it it's usually better the second time or the third time. We should note that the picture shows both countries. One side of the canyon is in the United States. The other side of the canyon is in Mexico. Were you interested in the geology in this picture, too? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I wish I were a geologist and I could just look at that rock and say that rock is whatever it is. And But I... I <laughs> I sometimes fantasize that I'm a geologist and an explorer down in these areas working, but I'm I'm really not. And in 2007, I was making a body of work about the geology of I-80, which cuts from New Jersey to to California. And on that trip, I mean, I was inspired to do that trip by John McPhee's book, Annals of the Former World, because I was really trying to understand the geology of the country. Like, why is there coal in Pennsylvania and what happened 360 million years ago to, to what, what was that landscape millions of years ago? And so John McPhee's book answered those questions for me. So I was able to slowly work across the country and look, read this book, look at that landscape. And it, it gave me so much insight. And, and really when the geology, my interest in geology started to come into the work was in Alaska in 2003. And I was in Fairbanks and I heard that there was this, and I think it was from the Center for Land Use Interpretation, that there was a permafrost tunnel that the Army Corps of Engineers maintained just north of Fairbanks. So I somehow found a number and I called and I was talking to the sergeant, some army sergeant, I can't remember his name, but he he said, well, meet me at the pipeline viewing station just north of Fairbanks. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just go up and meet this guy there. So I went and we I followed his, he was in a pickup truck and I followed him 
a little further north and we went through these gates, which he got out and unlocked the gates and then locked them. And I thought, where the hell am I going? And we went into this room, this building, and he said, so what do you know about the geology and history of Alaska? And I said, not much. And he said, well, you're going to learn it now. So he explained to me the engineering and construction of the Alaskan pipeline and why it's mostly on the surface of the land rather than pipelines are usually underground, right? So we talked about permafrost and he educated me about Alaska, it being 80% permafrost and how that affects the oil industry and the pipeline and just filled me in on all of it and the whole, you know, the history of Alaska. And so that was the beginning of when history and geology really started to come into my work. And I, I was always curious. I'm always stopping and reading those historical marker signs. But this guy opened my eyes. I mean, we, I think we talked for about three hours before he let me into the permafrost tunnel. And, you know, once, once I, I guess I passed the test, I, we went in and had a look and it was amazing to, to see and to understand what the pipeline is and why it's built the way it is. So then it, back to 2007, when I was working with John McPhee's um, Annals of the Former World and looking at that part of the country, I had been to, John McPhee travels with an, a geologist named David Love. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to find David Love. He teaches at University of Wyoming. He's in Laramie. I'm, I think it was Laramie. And I, I said, I'm going to stop and try to find him and talk to him. And what do I have to lose? So I went to the school and then I found out that he had died a few years previous. So I think John McPhee also mentioned that he had a son named Charlie Love, who was also a geologist and lived a few towns over from Laramie. So I tracked down Charlie and he really opened my eyes to just the importance of understanding geology and took me on a few drives to show me the area and to explain the geology that I was seeing. And he's a glaciologist and he's an expert on Easter Island. And so he he was a really fascinating, knowledgeable person. And I was very engaged. And then he had invited me to come back to Wyoming and to do, to go with his geology class because he was a, he was teaching geology to Yellowstone National Park. So the next year, I, I think in the fall, I actually drove out and went on the expedition to Yellowstone National Park with his, his class. And, you know, we, can't, we circulated around the park and within the park and we were camping and he was talking the whole time. We were really examining geology and it was really interesting. And that inspired the next body of work in 2008, which was Yellowstone National Park and following the Snake River Plain across southern Idaho and thinking about one of the, the super volcano that, that sits under one of our most popular national parks. And it was funny because I was meeting people that had escape routes planned and they're like, I know how I'm getting out of here when it hits. And so, (laughs) (laughs) so now, now I have earthquake alerts on my phone so I can keep track of everything where earthquakes are happening all over the world. So I know what's going on geologically. You know, you've done projects that are about the border or are about transportation or are about say energy. Do you look for places where those interests intersect or does that just happen naturally? I mean the 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 picture we've been talking about in Big Bend is both a geology picture and a border picture. Are are you talking about are the the projects do they come forth through my interest in I, yeah, do you look for places where a couple of those interests intersect or it just no, it I mean I'm not I'm not looking for places where like for example, I 
I was just down and I've been working for the past year and a half, I guess, in Galveston, Texas, based in Galveston, Galveston, Texas, where the Galveston Artist Residency and invited me to do a special project there. So I'm looking at industry there that's filled Houston, Texas City, filled with refineries, chemical plants, shipping terminals, everything I'm interested in. But GAR, the Galveston Artist Residency, they, they introduced me to a marine biologist named Christopher Benson from the from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is a government agency, and they have a they have offices and laboratories down in Galveston. So he really, so I I met him, and then he started to explain that landscape to me. So it it always comes together, and it makes it much more interesting for me to understand. You know, the, the landscape and the, the, the dredging of the Houston Ship Channel and how the island of Galveston has changed over years. We were looking at original 1930s photographs, aerial photographs of Galveston, the whole area, and it's transformed drastically. And sometimes that has to do with industry that's made an impact or it's weather. I mean, there's so many different circumstances that that changes the ecology of, of a place and the landmass and everything having to do with land. So that that makes it much more that makes my work much more interesting to have those conversations with scientists or who, whoever. You know, it might be scientist or a ranger or a local person that's grown up in the area, the historian, anyone that offers information about place. And that way I'm, I'm engaged and trying to understand what, what this place is, what it was, where it's going. I, I wish I were, again, I wish I were, <laughs> I think I'm a scientist, <laughs> want to be. One of the reasons I asked about possible intentional confluences is that uh, from time to time, pictures of yours from completely different, I don't know, projects might not be the right word, but but pictures you made while pursuing different foci have, can have a real pictorial similarity. So I'm thinking of, for example, in one of the border pictures, border view south with grasslands, a picture you made in Hereford or Hereford, Arizona in 2010 is, you know, pictorially really close to a picture titled an untitled picture of train line Cedar Point, Colorado from eight years earlier. Are you interested in those echoes or similarities in places you go and or the work you make when you're there? It's not anything that I'm thinking of or that I'm doing deliberately. It's just, I think, the way I'm seeing things or the way I want to see things. I'm I'm also sometimes when I'm looking at a, a group of photographs, I'm amazed at how formally similar they are. But it's not anything I'm I'm doing while I'm looking through the frame. When I'm looking through the frame, I'm trying to make the best photograph possible, the one that's most engaging for me that tells the story that I want to tell. Yeah, and that I, I I have noticed that. Many of the photos have the same structure to them. And maybe that's just, maybe that's the tool that I'm using. I'm using a five by seven field camera and you're looking at everything upside down and backwards and it's cumbersome. So you're you're not moving all over the place. You're just trying to find that one spot and setting up and hope you know, waiting for the light, waiting for the right circumstances to make that perfect picture that you're trying to make. It also may say something and reveal something about how Americans have built in the West. I mean, the railroad, for example, for, you know, for decades and maybe still could only handle a grade of what, 162 feet per mile or something. So it's going through the flattest place it it can so so inevitably a railroad is going to be going through through grassland and then when you look at the border fence in Arizona 
that's that's a place where grassland's pretty inevitable too. There are you know the places along the 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 U.S. Mexico you know there, there there's fence around on around seven or eight hundred miles of the twenty one hundred mile border. Inevitably, the places that are fenced are the places where the United States believes it's easiest to cross, and inevitably that's going to be the flat spots. That's that's right, and you'll see the border fence moving, going up a mountain, and then stopping. Like in uh, in California, I was in. I can't remember the name of the town right now, but there there's a town that I was in, and the border fence just stops right up the mountain. But then along Big Ben, there there's no border fence because it's it's a very rugged ter- it's rugged territory and difficult to get to those areas. There are no roads on the Mexican side. So, I mean, there are roads, but they're, they're difficult roads. So, and there's just that one small town, Boquillas del Carmen, that's right across from Big Bend. And there's only a few hundred people that live there. And they were telling cattle. me if they, yeah, yeah. And they were telling me just, you know, if they want to go to the doctor or something, they have to drive six hours. And I mean, it's just a full day. There's nothing very close there, but on the Mexican side. So there's, there's no fence there. But then, then there were areas in California where there, there are dunes and the, the border fence is engineered to move with those dunes. So it's actually in motion, that border fence. So we we figure ways to get around some of the obstacles, I guess, and sometimes not. You know, both of those pictures I just mentioned have or suggest a certain relationship to minimalism. And I know that one of the first things you were interested in investigating was the relationship between minimalism, the, the art movement, minimalism, and, and consumerism in American culture. What were the relationships between them that you wanted to tease out? And are there works of yours that, that you think do that best? When I was in, when I was in graduate school um, between 97 and 99, my thesis was very much looking at, well, I think it's, it, it continues, this, this idea of the American dream and what that means and when it, when I was in graduate school, I was making photographs of corporate headquarters and industrial boxes, warehouses, um, trucks, and suburban neighborhoods, and these cookie cutter houses. And thinking thinking about what because I'm I'm of immigrant parents. My parents came to the United States in the 50s pursuing the American dream and wanting a better life for their children than what they had. And they, they worked in factories. They worked very hard and, and they wanted something better for us. And I think their ideas were working rather in the factory, rather than the factories in the corporations, (laughs) working in the offices and living in one of those suburban neighborhoods and having a comfortable life and having a pension plan and having security, all the things that they didn't really have. So when I was in school, I was thinking, thinking about those ideas and what, what that meant. And, and then once I left New Haven, the first trip that I took in 2000 was straight back down, you know, straight down to the Mexican border (laughs) looking at NAFTA industry and development along the U.S.-Mexico border, particularly in Laredo. And also I was working around Dallas-Fort Worth, where Ross Perot Jr. had a 18,000-acre terminal, shipping terminal called Alliance. And, and so I, I was in these two places and transitioning from what I had been doing from school. It was still very much with me, but thinking about thinking about consumerism and what is in these warehouses, what what are all the what is all the stuff that we need and that that those trucks and trains and warehouses contain. 
and the thinking about the big box warehouses that we go to to shop and buy large quantities of things and and I also was influenced by the Germans, the Beckers, and was looking at obviously Andreas Gursky and Struth and all of those Germans. So applying that sensibility to what I was looking at along the border and thinking about minimalism and also thinking a lot about the land artists and Robert Smithson and yeah, so I was I was thinking about I have a lot of time to think about things when I'm driving, so all of these histories come come into it. And you get a, a piece from say 2002, White Trains on Salt Flats, which kind of get everything you just mentioned into one picture. I mean, you have you know the, those those highway on and off ramps, highways themselves, of course, in early Gursky, minimalism the salt flats that we know from 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 spiral jetty it all just sits in that picture it all comes together in that photo i feel like that's that's one of my most successful photographs it's so neutral yeah that's a good one it's that's 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 you can look at that one for a long time and many times and find many different things, both that within the picture, I mean, the difference between the color of the plants and the yellow line on the highway is bizarrely arresting in a, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's very weird and wonderful. And, and even this, you know, and if you want to go back into 19th century photographic history, the sky in that picture is just completely washed out and that may be clouds, but it also may have been something you did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's the skies in the early work is, is very particular everything because I was I was determined to have that neutrality in the work and so I would wait I would have to wait days or weeks sometimes to wait for that cloudy sky to take a photograph because it's a it's a completely different picture if everything's you know blue skies and sunshine and so yes it's a lot of a lot of waiting for gray skies I'm speaking with Victoria Sambunaris. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents High Society, the Portraits of Franz X. Winterhalter, celebrating the elegance and unrivaled brilliance of the renowned portraitist of 19th century European aristocracy. Some 45 master paintings are complemented by clothing created by sought-after fashion designer Charles Frederick Worth and his contemporaries. Now on view. Visit mfah.org slash high society for more. The exhibition Tony Aursler, Imponderable, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Drawing from the artist's archive of occult ephemera, Imponderable is an immersive feature-length film that reveals the intersection of media history and paranormal phenomena. Along with fascinating new exhibitions, Summer at the Museum includes live music on summer Thursdays in the Sculpture Garden, where awe-inspiring works created in the 1960s are now on view, and much more. Get tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And now back to my conversation with Victoria Sambunaris. So in this picture, we've been talking about White Trains on Salt Flats, which is untitled, but you know. And so in that picture is a series of rail cars on, on a railroad, on a train moving, moving across, presumably. You've been shooting railroad cars for a long, long time, um, whether they're coal cars or oil cars or containers on flatbeds, you know, kind of shot all of those and you keep shooting them. Why have they held your interest for, for 15 or more years? I, I really need a psychiatrist because <laughs> they <laughs> because I I don't know if it's the the fact that I never went I grew up on the East Coast I grew up in Lancaster Pennsylvania and never went west until I was 30 years old so I had no idea and when the first trip I took across the country I I graduated in 99, got in the car with this painter named Steve Walls, and we drove across the country. And 
I had all of my equipment with me and I didn't take one photograph on that trip because I was completely overwhelmed. And I remember that trip. I remember so distinctly driving through Texas, through the panhandle and seeing the trains. And it, it made such a, an impression on me. It means it, it's historical. It's, it, it references the past. It re- references the future. It's, it references consumer or consumerism. It's wondering what's in all of those cars, what we're carrying. I mean, the, it's really it really comes down to the box. I'm just obsessed with the box, but and and, and lines and I guess I, but I haven't I haven't stopped. I can't I can't believe I haven't. I mean, I'm still I'm still shooting a lot of trains. And right now, because I'm working on or I have been working in Galveston on thinking about the petrochemical and shipping industries. So, so much of that is carried on trains and, and trucks. So I'm back to it. Um, I can't escape it just because of the subject matter that I'm photographing. One of the things about those pictures that jumps out at me, maybe because of, of things I do when I'm not podcasting is, is, is that, you know, there's obviously a long history of of railroads and photography, uh, mostly in the American West. But when you when, when you go back into the 1860s and 70s, one of the things you almost never see in those pictures is freight. Railroad photography from the 19th century shows people, people people in trains, people standing on trains, people standing next to trains. It doesn't. You just don't see freight, even though freight is what really turned the railroads to profitability in the 1880s. I mean, freight is in all of your railroad pictures. Was that something that was just there, or did you think through kind of what that meant about now as compared to eras in the past? I'm thinking, I'm specifically looking at freight. I'm not I'm not shooting Am, you know, Amtrak trains coming through, and I'll get on an Amtrak train and look at landscape that way, which is very interesting too, because the trains go through areas that you sometimes can't get to by car. But yes, I'm I'm specifically looking at freight, and only be only because my my work has had so much to do with the built environment, industry, consumerism. I mean, it's been consistent all these 16 years, really. So even even now, this past trip in Galveston and Houston, I, I'm looking at freight. I'm at the container terminals looking, looking at, thinking about what is, what, what is in all of those containers and wondering about that. I've just spent the past year and a half photographing ships coming up the Houston ship channel and thinking about what exactly is in those tankers that are coming up, the ship tankers and the the container ships. And it's hard to... And a lot of those containers are, are, are going to be on trains, right? Yes. There's a whole system that that's that's what's in, I guess maybe it comes down to systems because this stuff comes comes across the Gulf Coast. It it, it ends up in the terminals. It gets on, put on ships. I mean on trains, on on trucks, and it moves through the country and distributes. And I I love thinking it's almost mathematical. I love thinking about these these systems that are set up for we as consumers and how much comes in and goes out and wondering what what it all what it all is and what it all means and also thinking about it politically too where last year i remember we were about we, we were placing sanctions on venezuela but while i was working there was a venezuelan tanker carrying some sort of gasoline additive that's illegal in a lot of states in the United States, but we still produce it and we still export it. And, and I, I, I thought, oh, this is, this is interesting. You know, we're placing sanctions, but we're still selling this toxic additive that 
to a country that we don't want to do business with anymore. So thinking a lot about politics and how that comes into the whole picture. I want to ask about two other works slash groups of works. First, Wendover, the the town on the Utah-Nevada border where the pilots who dropped the atomic bombs above Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, were trained. The airfield on which they were trained is still there. The 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 hangar in uh, the Enola Gay hangar. The Enola Gay hangar. Is yeah, there. yeah, it's still there. Um, all these years later, um, not pointedly protected, but the desert air does its thing. I know, and I'm sure you took more. I know two of your pictures from Wendover. One of a potash mine. Uh, where where you're in an elevated position and looking down at what is probably I-80 going across, and another of the town of Wendover itself. You've taken lots of mining pictures. I get why why mines are are of interest to you for lots of reasons, from from the history to the present. The picture of the town of Wendover, um, also taken from an elevated view, but with but with a foreground, I can't stop thinking about, but I have a harder time fitting it within your oeuvre. So tell me why the town was interesting. Wendover is fascinating. I I can't get enough of Wendover, and it's one of these places that I keep going back to as well. I haven't been there for a few years because I've been stuck down in Texas working, but any opportunity to get to Wendover, I'm there, and it's such a fascinating place because you have the border of Utah and Nevada straight through the middle of town. You have I-80 going west, east-west through that town, And there's so many worlds that collide in Wendover because on the on the Utah side you have the you know the Enola Gay hangar, you have the former base that was there, but you have cheap motels and convenience stores, and that's about it on the Utah side. I mean on the on the Utah side, and then you cross over into the Nevada side, and you have casinos and liquor stores and sex shops and golf courses and it's a whole other world but it's all one and that is so interesting to me but there's also this incredible history there because the base was there and so I think about how what it was back in the 40s and how populated it was and what it looked like then and how it's how it's transitioned and how it's changed and that's something that's constantly of interest to me with the work going back to place going back to the same towns and seeing how they've transformed over time and there are some towns that I go through that something's changed uh, maybe a mine opened again and the, ch- the town has transformed Gillette Wyoming is one of those places for me where I saw it early on I think in 2001 and and then went back in 2007 and saw how much it had changed and how it developed and it was unrecognizable to me and Also, when I'm talking about Laredo and El Paso, these towns have just boomed, and something something's changed. Maybe maybe NAFTA, maybe the army bases in El Paso has grown, and so it becomes more populated. And so that that's very interesting to me how how place changes based on on something something that's happened. In that place, you know that recitation of places reminds me that you know of how travel intensive your, uh, I mean how insanely travel intensive your work is. And one of the things I was I was thinking about last week is how when we think, I mean obviously the the tradition slash imperative of, of travel in American photography is deeply embedded, going back to Alexander Gardner and George Barnard and Carlton Watkins and Timothy O'Sullivan, but even more recently, say Robert Frank or Walker Evans. I just named a lot of dudes. Yeah. Do you think about, care about, is it important to you that you're engaging with that both spirit and actuality of American photographers going out into the land and traveling only you're not a dude? I think about it, yes. 
I think about it a lot. And first of all, I'm in awe of some of those dudes. Like, I can't believe with these early 19th century, you know, what they had to do to make a picture, what they were carrying, the equipment. And, you know, here I'm in my car and I have all the gear in the back and I have my tent on my roof, so I'm all contained. But still, it's like they they had so much more. They were carrying dark rooms with them and on top of the camera equipment and they're on horse and to me, amazing. And when I see pictures of the gear and how they were moving through that landscape, I'm, I'm, I'm really amazed. So yes, I, I do, I do think about that a lot. And I, you know, I think, I think about the fact that there aren't so many women and I, I, you know, I, I feel like I've made decisions in my life to to enable me to work the way I do. You know, I'm not living this conventional life. I'm not. I don't have children that I have to tend to, and that's that's something. That's a choice that I've made. That I have no you know no regrets, and I'm happy being <laughs> working and making making pictures. And I admire. I have so much admiration for my friends who are mothers that continue to make photographs that go out into the world and work and raise children and teach and do it all. I'm, I'm in all of those people too. Do you think there's anything particularly gendered in your work in, 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 in the prints? I don't, I don't think so, but I've been told that this is, of the eye. This is from the eye of a woman, but I, I, I don't see that. Do you? I don't think I do. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I do. I don't. And I looked for it before we talked. I mean, I, I, you know, when I, when I made my notes about that question, I thought to myself, I'd better go back and look and make sure I'm not missing something I should see. And I couldn't find it, but that doesn't mean people smarter than me don't notice things I might not. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes I feel my gender, sometimes it helps me, you know, because I'm definitely working in a man's world and all of these industrial complexes and mining, all of it is dominated by men mostly. But so, so sometimes, sometimes being a woman helps me get into places because maybe I'm not so much as a, so much of a threat. But then other times I I feel like it, you know, it it can work against you too, where you're not maybe not taken as seriously. And I've also found camaraderie with other women, with women who work in mining. In in Pennsylvania, I met a woman who we've become friends since. But in 2007, her family owned a mine, and I I won't forget when I met her. Like I I heard that I was going to meet the the owner of the mine, and she was as glamorous as they come, you know, with nails and hair, and like she had a you know pink boots on, and she looked amazing, and she was beautiful, you know, and. And I said, you own this mine? And she said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, so, and she gave me free access to the mine. She opened her home to me, her family. I mean, it's, and the relationship continues. So it's, it's been, yeah, it works both ways, I guess. The last picture I wanted to ask about is from 2010, it's uh, non-subtitled farm with workers. You made it in uh, a very small place called, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Jacumba, California. Jacumba, yes. Let, let me just say, that's the photograph where the fence just stops. It goes up the mountain and you can see it. It just ends. So I was going to ask about that, about that exact thing. So is, I assume that's the same fence in the foreground the picture. We'll have this picture on manpodcast.com. So what, what, what is happening in the picture is that a border fence, Corten Steel presumably, is uh, making kind of an S-curve across the foreground of the picture into somewhere we can't see off to the right, and then comes back in and then contained 
within the curve of the fence is is a field, a, a, a an agricultural field that looks like it's been planted or begun to be planted, but has not yet fully been planted. It is it is industrial agriculture at its most western and at its you know the kind of the scale you would expect. First of all, how did you find this place in this picture? So to 2009 to 2011, I was traveling the entire border area from Brownsville to San Diego. So this place is along the way. And I remember driving through and, and I stopped and I actually camped very close to that where I took that photograph. And it was, I actually just camped in account. It was the park in the town. It's tiny, tiny town. And all night long, Border Patrol were going down the road. I could hear them. I heard an explosion that night. It was that no one knew what had happened. And I, I was thinking there was there's a, a tunnel coming through or something. But yeah, so I, it was in that that particular town. I I I stumbled on it and found it very found it interesting. Found it interesting for that agricultural aspect, but also the fact that the fence just ends there. I mean, you mentioned the industrial aspect of of the agriculture here. I don't know what what, what what's in the field, but I do know that all this industrial agriculture, you know, which dates back to, to California in the late 1870s, early 1880s, requires uh, all of that railroad infrastructure and boxcar infrastructure and ships and such that are throughout the rest of your work. So here's a picture. You are, you're there because you're exploring the border. And yet what's in, you know, 70% of the picture you know, so except for the sky and the hills, has a lot to do with everything else, not everything, but a lot of what else you make pictures about. So for you, is this a border picture or, you know, are are we getting to a point in your practice where maybe you're on a trip for a specific thing, but you're finding everything else you've been making for 15 years and that's why it's a picture? Yeah, that sometimes, sometimes other interests collide and so all incorporated in, but that had that particular place. It, it was interesting to me the the entire border area because there were so many farms that were either dried up or you know places where there were there was abundant far, farming in the 80s, and then it all stopped. Or I, I encountered farms where I'm talking to the farmer and he's telling me. There are no people to work here. These places are desolate. They, there's no, there's no population there, and they can't find people to work. And with the border being so militarized, it's not easy to find workers from Mexico to come and work. Or, and there are no Americans that that are there to work. And so they're changing their crops so that they're uh, mechanically harvesting. The, the crop because they they just can't find. I, f- I found that I found that part of looking at the border area very very interesting because it was it was apparent that the the farm in particular that I was talking about where he had to change the crop due to having to to machine harvest. You could see there was right across the border there was a small Mexican town and that was pretty much abandoned. There was nobody living there. And I asked him, I said, So did this town over here service your farm? And he, he said in the past it did. And talking to farmers and ranchers, I was talking to a rancher who grew up in Marfa and he was telling me how all the ranch hands were from Mexico, and they'd come up and stay at the ranch and work for the week. And then on Friday, they'd get paid, and they would go back to their, you know, just go across the border and go back to their families and see their families and, and then come back. So there was this constant flow over the border that has, has stopped due to, you know, September 11th and the closing of the border. So that, that that picture, I guess, incorporates some of that 
thought. Yeah, no, that's a it's a really it's a really great picture for for I mean all of those reasons, but also lots of historical reasons that work for me. Victoria Sambunaris, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, Tyler, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Delimitations, a survey of the 1821 United States-Mexico border at its downtown location from July 22nd through November 27th. In 2014, artists Marcos Ramirez Ere and David Taylor set out to trace the historical 1821 border between Mexico and the Western territories of the United States. For Delimitations, Ere and Taylor contemplated what the border would look like today if that boundary had been fully realized. Documenting the process, the artists marked the boundary by installing 47 sheet metal markers that mimic the stone and iron obelisks that delineate the current border. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Blanton Museum of Art curator Veronica Roberts. Her exhibition, Converging Lines, Ava Hess and Saul LeWitt, is at the Cleveland Museum of Art now through the end of the month. It examines the Hess-LeWitt friendship and the ways in which they informed each other's work. Veronica Roberts, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. So there are kind of two primary reasons for putting Eva Hess and Saul LeWitt in a show together. So let's start there. The first reason is that they were pals. Yeah, they were very close friends. They met in the late 1950s in New York when they were both, neither of them really had a name for themselves. And I discovered in my, my research, it was interesting, the person who introduced them was a man by the name of Robert Slutsky, who was a beloved educator and architectural historian who taught for decades at Cooper Union. It turns out he taught at UT Austin, of all things, and uh, developed this amazing pedagogy and moved to New York and worked for IMP. And that's where he met Solowit and he introduced Solowit to a woman he was dating at the time named Eva Hesse. So why did they happen to get along? I mean, there were, were there some, some cultural reasons? Were they artistic reasons? You know, that's a really good question. And I, I knew Saul personally, but I never met Eva. So, you know, it would be a little bit of speculation on my part, but they certainly had, they did have some cultural similarities. I mean, both of them uh, were Jewish. You know, they both based their careers in New York. They both lived on the Bowery for many years, although they didn't when they first met. I mean, my my impression is that even though their personalities were really different, Eva was, from all accounts, incredibly extroverted, dynamic, gregarious. Saul was much shyer, didn't try to stay away from the limelight as much as possible. But but I think they were both very generous friends. And I, there are very few people who met Saul and didn't fall in love with him as a person. And there are very few people who met Eva and didn't fall in love with her as a person as well. So I think that they were just incredibly generous to each other. And I think it was really important, especially for Eva in, in a really sexist art world at the time. I think Saul was a really big champion and supporter and understood how serious she was about her work. And the other way, of course, that, that Hess and Lewitt are in a show together is the dialogue they had with each other through their work. How did that happen? That, yeah, that's really interesting. They were visiting each other's studios all the time. They were both living basically in a, you know, two blocks away from each other on the Bowery. And I think the dialogue starts happening in their work, especially when Eva gets back from Germany in 1965. She and her husband, the sculptor Tom Doyle, had been in Germany for 15 months. And you see you see her starting to really respond to, to 
to minimalism and to respond to the geometric forms of people like Solowit, his cube sculptures or structures, as he called them. And you see her really riffing on that because she's she's really returned from Germany a sculptor and has explored that language and had all these breakthroughs. But all of a sudden, her sculptures go from multicolored in Germany to New York black, you know, minimalist black. There's a dramatic moment in the exhibition. The first gallery is their early work and it's, it's, it's a rainbow of color. And then you enter the second gallery, which is all after 1965 and it's literally black, white, and gray. And you can just feel that difference. So I think she's really responding to his work and that story has been told. You know, if you look at, if you look at any Hesse book, you will in find, invariably find in the index L under L you'll find LeWitt. And you'll see, you know, you'll read about how she was looking at his work. You know, she starts working with industrial fabricators. She starts playing with repetition and seriality, all these things that, you know, people like Saul and others were exploring. But one of the reasons I really wanted to do this show is is that I felt like there was another, there was a part of the story that wasn't being told. Because if you look at the Lewitt literature, you'll never, you almost never will find Eva mentioned as anything more than a friend to him. And I think she, I think she had enormous impact on his work. And you'll see that in, you see that in the show, the, the way I, the place I think you see it first, most dramatically, he helped her install a sculpture and I, I reproduce it in the exhibition because it's no longer around. It was, it, it's been lost and was probably accidentally destroyed, but it's this amazing sculpture called Metronomic Irregularity 2. And it's three masonite panels with these gridded holes and that, that are connected with cotton covered wire. And it, this work was included in Eva's, one of her first big shows, this show eccentric abstraction that's now become kind of this landmark show and that Lucy Lepard curated in 1966. And Saul LeWitt and Mel Bachner helped her install that work. And if you look at the work, it actually looks a little bit like a wall drawing, you know, the, the way that it looks a lot like, a doesn't wall. it? The shadows that it casts on the wall. It's, and it's sort of this hybrid sculpture and painting, but specifically, it looks like wall drawing 797. <laughs> You're right. Which is on view at Mass Mocha now, of course. Yeah. And it's actually on view in our show too. That's so funny. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You can see it in the distance when you look at this work in the galleries, but yeah, it looks like a wall drawing. And this is before Saul made his first wall drawing. He doesn't make his first wall drawing until 68. But what's so interesting is he described to people, he was unlike somebody like Clifford Still, he wasn't loath to admit artistic influences. And he he credited he credited Eva with and talked about her as influencing his work. Just no one ever seems to, to sort of write about that or explore it any further. But he helped install this work. And he said he was so struck by it. He thinks it was one of the most important sculptures of the 20th century. And for him, he said it was one of the first works that first works that he really responded to of installation art. And he said that what really seemed important about this work and influential to him was this idea that the work was never going to be the same twice because Eva would hand thread the wire into the holes of these panels every single time. And she would, you know, so it would be, so essentially anytime you display that sculpture, it would be, it would be a new breathing thing. It would not be a static object. It would be sort of this living thing. And I, when you think about Saul's wall drawings, that's what, that's part of their very, that's part of their magic that they're, and that's really part of their DNA. DNA, that they are they are never the same twice. This sort of notion of variability, I think he really that Hesse really gives helps give him that idea that's so important to him. He even goes out of his way to tip his hat to her in an early wall drawing from 1970, wall drawing number 46. That's right. And that was actually the catalyst and the inspiration for the show. I first met Saul when I worked at the, the Whitney Museum and helped coordinate his traveling retrospective from SF MoMA. And I remember being- The Gary Garrels curated show. Exactly. And I remember being so struck by that wall drawing. It's vertical lines that were not straight. They sort of squiggle on the wall and, and really an, a beautiful wall drawing. It's so different from the early works, which are all systematic combinations of lines and four directions and have a, a sort of rigorous logic to them and a system to them. And I asked Saul about it and he told me the story of how he had made that in response to learning that Eva had died in, in 1970. He was about to install a show in Paris at at a gallery there. And he decided, he changed his mind about what he was going to install and he decided he wanted to make a work in in her, an homage to her. And so he said he combined something of his with something of hers. And the something of his was the wall drawing, since that was 
a medium he was clear uh, format he was exploring and the something of hers was the not straight line because it looks so much like the rope and the the wire that she used you know that sort of organic sensibility you see in her work when it comes to the box or the cube did they inform each other that's sort of the new discovery for me because i've been really looking more in the past year i've been thinking a lot about the box and the cube because you know the the work that we know that the sort of iconic for solowit are those open white cube structures and i definitely think Eva looked at those and, you know, there's a, there's a work in the exhibition, a great box that she fills, a metal box that Eva makes that she fills with these rubber tubes and it, and it, it, it becomes, in, I think, sort of erotic almost and, and this sort of mysterious vessel. So I definitely think she was responding to his, but then as I started to look a little bit more, I discovered that he made these very kind of irrational, wonderful, mysterious cube and box structures as well that you know not just the sort of perfect platonic white open cube structures but i include these two early uh, boxes in the show and i say boxes even though they're cube in shape they they contain things they have these sort of hidden elements that you can only just make out and 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 they actually feel very much connected to to hess's work and i think that i think that you know some people have written about this but i think both artists really loved the absurd and both were exploring irrationality and 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 I think there's also a real sense of play you see in in both of their work you know for Hessa she's playing with materials and Saul's really more playing with ideas but there's a real sense of play in some of these especially in those box sculptures the Hessa work is accession 5 from 1968 which uh, remains in the Lewitt collection the LeWitt you're referencing is, I believe, Nine Boxes from 1963, which is at the uh, Hamburger ba- uh, Bonhoeff. One of the other stories of the show, and it's in the catalog too, is the correspondence that they carried on with each other. Postcards, letters, were they a primary interest for you when you started working on the show, or did they become of interest to you as you worked on the show? Kind of both. I was definitely familiar with this extraordinary five-page letter that that Solowit wrote wrote Eva Hesse when she was in Germany because that's been the transcript of that is in the Lucy Lepard book and I really wanted to include that in the exhibition and had that in mind from the get-go I had no idea though that he had sent her so many postcards and I really I kind of fell in love with them and they're they're so they're so Solowit they're they're funny the images that are great you know he's got one of this roaring hippopotamus and you know they're just they're they're funny they're warm he's constantly talking about seeing her work and reporting oh i saw your work here at this museum it looks great you know asking her about her work and uh so they're they're warm they're funny and they're visually uh, amazing but the letter was kind of at the heart of the show and i really had thought about that from the very beginning because i know it's really touched so many artists and the number of people who've told me, the number of artists who've told me that they keep a copy of this letter in their studio or they share it with their students, Janine Antoni and Peter Coyne. Charles Long just told me that, you know, this is one of his favorite letters and he shares it with his students. So I'm going to ask you to read some of that letter in a moment, but before I do, could you set up the circumstances under which he happened to write it to her on and and the date of the letter is April 14th 1965 what was happening then and and why did he feel compelled to write it so what's happening then is Eva Hesse is in Germany at the time and she is just feeling she's written him a letter and in the letter to Saul she has said that she's just feeling a lot of doubt about the work that she's making she's she's really exploring all these new directions and she's just not sure if it's any good So that's the context for the letter. And let me read to you maybe the, I'm going to read part of the beginning because I think it's, it's, it's particularly great. So he writes, Dear Eva, it will be almost a month since you wrote to me and you have possibly forgotten your state of mind. I doubt it though. You seem the same as always and being you hate every minute of it. Don't learn to say fuck you to the world once in a while. You have every right to. Just stop thinking, worrying, looking over your shoulder, wondering, doubting, fearing, hurting, hoping for some easy way out, struggling, grasping, confusing, itching, scratching, mumbling, bumbling, grumbling, humbling, stumbling, 
numbling, rambling, gambling, tumbling, scumbling, scrambling, hitching, hatching, bitching, moaning, groaning, honing, boning, horse shitting, hair splitting, nitpicking, piss trickling, nose sticking, ass gouging, eyeball poking, finger pointing, alleyway sneaking, long waiting, small stepping, evil eyeing, back scratching, searching, perching, besmirching, grinding, grinding, grinding away at yourself. Stop it and just do. And he writes do with this really embellished. He writes it in all caps at the bottom of the page. And then he, and then let me just read a little bit more. From your description and from what I know of your previous work and your ability, the work you are doing sounds very good. Try and tickle something inside you, your weird humor. You belong in the most secret part of you. Don't worry about cool. Make your own uncool. Make your own, your own world. If you fear, make it work for you. Draw and paint your fear and anxiety. And stop worrying about big, deep things such as, to quote, to decide on a purpose and way of life, a consistent approach to even some impossible end or even an imagined end, end of quote. You must practice being stupid, dumb, unthinking, empty, then you will be able to do. I have much confidence in you. And even though you are tormenting yourself, the work you do is very good. Try to do some bad work, the worst you can think of and see what happens, but mainly relax and let everything go to hell. You are not responsible for the world. You are only responsible for your work. So do it. And he goes on. I love that part where he says, you know, try to do some bad work, the worst you can think of and see what happens, but mainly relax and let everything go to hell. In the catalog, that entire letter is reproduced between some postcards Lewitt sent to Lucy Lepard that are now at the Addison and and some Lewitt wall drawings. Can you tell us how the letter exists in the show? The letter exists in in a case so that you can read all five you can read all five pages of it, and I see people poring over it and summoning their friends to to look at it because it's just it sort of build, the the rhyming verbs it sort of builds this momentum and he's just so it's it's just I think a really a pretty amazing letter. I only read you the first half of it. It just keeps going. But you can really see the depth of their friendship, too. Saul was not much of a long letter writer. You know, I've 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 spent years looking at his work and his correspondence. And he was a postcard writer. You know, his his wife told his wife, Carol Lewitt, told me that whenever they traveled, they'd, he'd spend four hours at a cafe with a stack of postcards. You know, that's that's what he did. And then he'd go buy some music, you know, after seeing art in the morning. That was his routine when he tra- when they traveled. It was always a stack of postcards. But I think he just I think he just felt compelled to write her because he couldn't see her frittering away her talents in this doubt. And he wanted her to know that that she she had to keep going and look at what work she made when she got back. I mean, clearly this letter meant something to her and seems to have really worked. <laughs> well, Veronica Roberts, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.